It's Tuesday, July 19th, and this is the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. i got Matt Norlander with me, and we wanted to uh, knock out an episode before we both head to uh, Las Vegas uh, for the final five-day evaluation period of July. Norlander, are you ready for Las Vegas? I'm never ready for Las Vegas, to be honest, but yet at the same time, I'm ready. should be interesting. You know, we get to, we'll get to see players we saw in Augusta, but then we'll see plenty of guys that we did not see, and it is always... Uh, <laughs> Listeners don't want to hear it, but it, it like can truly be a grind in Vegas. Because don't get me wrong, like we'll have a nice dinner or two, and it's it's fun, uh, especially to see uh, see everyone. But the mornings come fast, and the games go late. Like we'll go to games, and they'll still be playing at nine o'clock at night. You know, like they just keep going and going and going. So it's definitely a grind, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually also I won't spoil the story here, but I'm I'm working on an Olympics-related story while I'm out there as well. So I'll dip out for a couple hours. And, uh, and work on that, and we'll, there'll be a feature on that on the site uh, probably in the next two weeks or so. It is, uh, there's four major summer basketball events that will be happening in Vegas at the same time. They, they basically start on Wednesday. You and I are flying to Vegas on Wednesday. Here's the important question. I have a 6 a.m. flight on Saturday because i got to be back home uh, Saturday afternoon because I have to host a charity event on Saturday night. The odds that I make my 6 a.m. flight on Saturday – Good or, uh, good or bad? Would you bet on me or against me? I'd say eight, eight to three odds. That's why I, that's what I'm, I'm laying right now. Um, you've done this before. I feel like, actually, I feel like I've never successfully done it. I feel like twice in the past few years you've had like a six a.m., seven a.m. flight. One time you definitely did not make it. <laughs> I feel like last year you had this as well and you made it, but I might not be remembering that correctly. I but you think... definitely did not make it one year, without a doubt. <laughs> I, 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 I think two years ago was I had like a 7 a.m. flight and I had a – you know, sometimes when you have an early flight, you'll wake up and um, you go, oh, my God, I, I'm going to have to rush to get there. And I probably won't make it even if I rush, but, like, I got a shot. Like, this was one of those deals where – Flight leaves at 7.05, and my eyes don't even open for the first time till like, 9.15. Like, there's no shot. Like, the plane's already, like, in the air, 20,000 feet before my eyes even open. So then I think last year I just I sort of I just sort of decided, like, let's, let, no sense in lying to yourself anymore. You're not going to make that flight. So I booked – I want to say, like, I booked a late afternoon flight, like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. If you miss that one, you're just an idiot. I, and I'm not saying it's impossible, but like it's it's much easier to catch that one than the early one. But this year, I've got to be home. I've got no choice. So I've got a plan. You're probably going to have to assist me with this. I'm taking my bags, rental car, everything to the airport on Friday night, like around 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whenever we get out of the gyms on Friday night, taking everything I have and checking it at the airport, turning my rental car in. That way, no matter where we're at at, say, 4 a.m., all I got to do is jump in an Uber and go straight to the airport and get on a plane and collapse. That's a sound plan, but I'm going to be honest here. You had this plan. You told me this plan before. I feel like I've had this plan before, also poorly executed and, it. And you definitely did not go – you definitely had this plan before, and you definitely did not go to the airport and do this. Now, it's a sound plan, and you can do it in Vegas because the airport is – like in some spots, like you land the airport's – 10, 15, 20 minutes away. Vegas, it's five minutes from the Strip. So it's definitely very, very doable. 
uh, and I'm all for you giving this a go, uh, I do have skepticism that it's actually going to be pulled off. But uh, I'm definitely willing to assist in whatever way I possibly can. But I know you've had this plan before. Yeah. And maybe you're right. Maybe last year you left afternoon. But I'm telling you, I, I feel like it was last year before <laughs> you wanted to do this and you did not do it. Okay. Uh, well, listen, we'll, we'll, I will give an honest uh, evaluation of myself on next on a podcast next week. I'll let you know whether I made the 6 a.m. flight or not. But certainly the odds are stacked against me. It's going to take something uh, something just short of a miracle to make this happen. A um, couple things that are interesting happening in college basketball over the past week. I want to start with uh, some news that broke yesterday. Changes to the NCAA tournament. You wrote about it. The story's posted CBSSports.com. For people who haven't seen it yet, what changes are coming for the NCAA tournament? Okay, so this isn't – all right, so the headline that actually this got somewhat decent amount of attention, more than I expected, was going forward – Let's say we get to mid-February, okay? And the NCAA will be communicating with any possible realistic team that will be in contention for number one overall seed uh, for the tournament coming up, you know, Selection Sunday a few weeks after that. So realistically, this will probably be as many as 20 to 25 programs because the NCAA will absolutely want to cover all of its bases and make sure that anyone, you know, within possible um, logistical realm could be a number one seed. They'll communicate, and, they'll, and that program, that school, everyone will say, "Okay, we have these these cities." In fact, I'll read you the cities real quick here. Um, next year, here's the first weekend sites: Buffalo, Milwaukee, Orlando, Salt Lake City, Indianapolis, Greensboro, North Carolina, Tulsa, and Sacramento. Those are the eight cities that will host first weekend games next year. And so, the team that wins the number one overall seed will have the option of. Oh, not the they will get to say, okay, we want to travel here. Ultimately, this isn't going to change too, too much because what happens is obviously teams that are seeded one through four get geographic preference, but occasionally there are situations where uh, a team is somewhat equidistant between two and it might uh, choose one or another, but the committee might give it the one that it would not have chosen. Now, the number one overall seed will get the choice. It's a cool little wrinkle. Um, that's the definite thing that's coming. Well, that, that, you're, what you just said was my initial thought. Like, doesn't the number one overall seed usually go where it would want to go? Normally, yes, but this, you know, it, at least it's something. Okay, sure, it's tiny, but it's tiny. To me, the more important things are the things that are not yet set in stone, but that are moving toward. Uh, I think being put toward into legislation for the season after the upcoming one, and that is primarily. This ad hoc coaches committee that was by from the uh, NABC that was uh, created this year, it basically got together. It's got a bunch of coaches on it. It's got Huggins and Pew and a, and a whole bunch of coaches. Uh, I think Calipari is actually on the, the the ad hoc committee as well. Yes, and it, it, it sent a bunch of recommendations to the NCAA and its selection committee and said, "Hey, listen, you know, we want you to take these things into consideration." And one of the things was. More emphasis on road wins and neutral wins. I had a really good conversation, actually, after Gonzaga was beat in Chicago with Mark Few um, about this. We talked for about 30 minutes about all this. Few is one of the best schedulers. He, like, totally gets it. Um, but it basically wants the, the selection committee even more so to put emphasis on road and neutral wins, quality wins, really looking at strength of non-conference schedules when it comes to this kind of stuff. And there are plenty of coaches on the ad hoc committee who aren't at, you know, top 10, top 15 programs. So that's something that won't necessarily be 
written and explicitly followed for this upcoming season, but it could and should be something, and I think it will be something that gets put into effect going forward beyond that. Another thing, this is also a big one in my opinion, the NCAA is moving closer to having a composite ranking system that would include everything from Ken Palm to Sagarin. Uh, you know, it could have ESPN's BPI, which has plenty of critics, but I think it will include five to six mainstream rankings. I wouldn't put RPI in there, but it probably will end up being in there, and that's fine. Ultimately, what we will get is a composite. It will be an average of all of these different ranking systems, a 1 to 351, and it will be more of an accurate uh, guide map for the selection committee. This is not official yet. It would not be in place for the upcoming season. Uh, the NCAA says at the earliest it would be for the season after, for 2017-2018. That's fine. I think we're headed that way anyway, and we should be. So these are these are pretty positive steps forward. Um, and, and again, to the NCAA's credit, I say this every March, even though we're, we kill the NCAA selection committee for a number of things, sometimes rightfully so, with Monmouth not getting in, with Tulsa getting in and all that stuff, they do genuinely try every year to at least get it better and a little more transparent. I think they're still moving that direction. So these are good things because ultimately everyone only cares about the bracket, you know, as we get to February and bubble teams in when selection Sunday and the tournament and all that. But these are when these decisions are getting made is in the offseason when no one's really thinking a lot about college basketball and the tournament and how, and how the bracket's assembled. But this is when we're having these huge meetings and, and getting together and, and deciding how protocols are going to be put into place. So I think that's pretty important going forward. The number one seed was the was the main headline, but it's not much of a thing. Um, ultimately, I think there are other things that could still be done to improve both selection and that could you know increase um, the amount of intrigue with with the bracket reveal overall. But I think those things are still to come. But I would I would qualify it as as good news. But we're still we still you know need some more time and and I think a year from now we'll be uh, we'll be in a better spot overall. I'm down with the composite ranking because I think any of the individual rankings are they're, they're flawed in some way. Um, but like you, getting a good solid composite out of five, six, eight, I don't care how many different computer formulas, like it's got to be an improvement over the current system. It won't be perfect, but anything that's better than what we have is better than what we have. So I'm down with that question for you on the number one seed thing. I think you and I uh, agree the number one overall seed typically is going to go where it would prefer to go no matter what anyway. So, um, so not that big of a deal. I wonder if there would be any strategy in this regard. Um, could somebody pick a Friday, Sunday, number one overall seed and put geography aside and say, hey, we want to go to a Friday, Sunday pod because we want the extra day of rest or we want to go to a Thursday, Saturday pod because we want to be back home on Saturday night or Sunday to have, uh, you know, so we're not traveling on Sunday night or Monday. I wonder if that comes into play at all. I think that's a very good point because, and it could also be totally valid. Uh, like what if you got yeah. a, like what if you got a point guard with a bad hamstring or a bad ankle and yeah. you, and you say, Hey, um, like, uh, but, yeah, okay. Like, like Ty, remember when Ty Lawson, like got, had a toe problem or something. Let's say, right. let's say this upcoming year, I don't know. Monte Morris had a had a, a, a a bad ankle that in, injury or something happened in the Big Twelve tournament, and you see in your Steve Prom and somehow you're the number one overall seed. I, don't yeah, get, I, I don't get you. Yeah, and you say, hey, let's just play Friday Sunday because it'll give it'll give our point guard an extra day of rest. Like I wonder if that will ever come into play. 
I wonder if it will. And I also want to know, this hasn't been made clear yet, when the deadline would be. Because what ah, I think will happen is yeah. eventually the committee is going to need to know. To me, there's no reason why. Listen, the teams didn't know, period, before this. So right. to me, there's no reason why, let's say, the you know, the presumptive number one overall seed, these schools can't get in their word by midnight the night before the bracket. There's no reason why they can't do that. So I think that should. Yeah. Like why? Yeah. Like why couldn't you just um, say, Hey, we would prefer to go if we're the number one overall seed, you know, we're a week out. Hey, NCAA calls, you might be a number one overall seed. Where would you like to go? We'd like to go to Indianapolis. What, what, what would be the big issue with calling on Sunday morning and saying, Hey, we want to we want to change. We'd rather go to Buffalo now. Like what? Like it wouldn't it should in theory shouldn't be a big deal. It sh- it shouldn't be. Um, I do like this element of teams. I wish there was a little bit more. I've actually got a column idea. I don't want to spoil it on the podcast, and I'm thinking if I should wait until we actually get into the season. But I like the only way I can tease this. I like putting more of teams having some sort of say. Top teams of where they might play, who they might play against. I think that that adds a really interesting level of, uh, of intrigue to the process. And I think if it doesn't mess up competitive balance within the bracket, it's something that the NCAA should absolutely look at further going forward because ultimately Selection Sunday is just one of the most looked forward to sports television shows of the year. And um, the NCAA should be open to making it as good as possible. Um, some recruiting news um, happened since we recorded our last podcast. Big, significant recruiting news. Uh, unsurprising, but still significant. Michael Porter Jr. committed to uh, Washington. I know you had talked to Michael and, 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 um, at Peach Jam. And, uh, you know, he had insisted and he had insisted. All I gave along. him every possible. Right. Listen, it was it was basically presumed this was going to happen. I gave this kid every possible opportunity to not give other schools hope necessarily. He was insistent. Right. So I wrote it. Now you're going to tell me those things. I'm going to write it, you know, that you reached out to Indiana and Virginia and all these schools and wanted them to keep recruiting you. Um, ultimately i'll let you finish your thought here gp but i i come away with thinking this like you know you knew at peach jam you're going to washington it was essentially a done deal i don't know why you had to necessarily continue to string these schools along for uh, another week or two but it is what it is he's a good kid he's a great player washington's great to have him of course they hired his dad his, his brother's actually going to play there as well right um so it's a coup for washington uh and it's a major five star off the board in you know the summer we often you know we don't get these five stars going until August, September, October, November, even later. So, yeah, we get an early one off. I, I think it's smart for the kid just to go ahead and, and end this. Everybody knew where it was going. Like, I, I'm not I'm not interested in calling him a liar. You know, I don't think he was lying necessarily. Uh, plus, he's a kid. I'm not going to be the, the old man calling a kid a sure. liar. But, like, nobody believed him. I'll put it that way. Like, he was insisting my enrollment isn't tied to my father's employment. Um, nobody, nobody believed that. But I had talked to... Uh, some of the staffs who were still recruiting him, you know, uh, uh, in addition to the Washington staff, and they were like, "Hey, listen, he's telling us that it's it's not over. He's telling us to uh, that we're still involved." And so I took this to another assistant coach, um, and I and I was just sort of retelling that story. And this assistant coach said, "The kid's just being polite. He's not like you know that's what he's being. He's being polite, he, but he's not going anywhere other than Washington. Like this is crazy." And uh, and of course, then on Friday he before leaving for 
uh, uh, South America. Is that where they went for the U18? Yeah, FIBO yeah, uh, uh, Americas tournament. Uh, he announced that he is uh, committed to Washington. For people who don't follow recruiting or don't know this story, um, his father is Michael Porter Sr., and his father was hired by Lorenzo Romar, Washington's coach, back in May. So I wrote about this on Friday night. It's just amazing to me. And we've seen a lot of this in college athletics um, over the past week, um, how fans can be blinded. Like fa fans resist the truth sometimes, even when the truth isn't bad. Like in this case, the truth isn't even bad. Like it it's perfectly legal. If I were Lorenzo Romar and you told me, hey, you can get Michael Porter Jr. if you hire Michael Porter Sr., I'd say, cool. I'd hire, I'd hire his mom to get him. Like, whatever. Uh, the kid's spectacular. So, like, it's legal, and it's something I would do. It's something other schools have done in the past. Um, John Calipari's done it before. Josh Pastor did it at Memphis a few years ago. Um, it, it's not unique to, to Lorenzo. It's not unique to Washington. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. And yet, I still had, when I wrote the story, some Washington fans, like, just resisting the idea that, this was tied to Michael Porter Sr.'s employment, resisting the idea that Lorenzo hired Michael only to, to get to, to hired Michael Sr. to get Michael Jr., or that Michael Jr. went to Washington only because that's where his father went. And it's just like bananas to me. It, 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 I don't understand why it's so hard to just acknowledge it is what it is. I had uh, like Washington fans trying to explain to me on Twitter, well, GP, what you have to understand is um, – Lorenzo's known Michael Sr. forever. Okay, cool. Well, why did, he's also been a college basketball coach forever. Why didn't he try to hire him five years ago? Why didn't he try to hire him two years ago, three years ago, seven years ago? Like, why, why did it just now happen? Because his son's just now of age to commit to and sign with a, uh, a university. That's why. Why Pretending otherwise is silly. Then I had people say, um, what was the other one? Oh, you well, you have to understand Michael Michael Senior is a is a college basketball as if I don't know his history. He is a college basketball coach. Okay, cool. And and please correct me if I'm wrong, Norlander. Have you ever can you remember a time when a women's assistant coach was hired at a power five school as an assistant coach on the men's side? Like has it has it happened in the history of college basketball? Uh, I mean I, I cannot specifically <laughs> recall. I think there's a possibility. I mean, maybe it has, but I can't a, recall. A male assistant at a women, but yeah, a, a male assistant at a women's program has has gone from one side to the other. I'm sure it's happened. But at, it's, the, at the power, I, I guess it's happened. Power five level. I mean, I, it, it could have happened, but it's not. It's not something you see every day. I mean, you, listen, you and I, you and I don't recall it. Okay, like it, please, I, and I mean this sincerely. If somebody knows an example, tweet us. I'd be. I I can't think of one off the top of my head. So you're really insisting that. The first time, far as any of us know, that a women's assistant coach has got hired on a men's uh, to a men's staff in a Power Five league, you're, it, this is the first time, and it 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 just happened to be on its own merits. It wasn't because his son is one of the top five players in America. Like, why would you even try to pretend that? I don't even think Lorenzo would try to pretend that. So, like, it is what it is, and it's fine. And yet, I had fan after fan. Uh, you know, with some sort of uh, Washington avatar, try to, like tr just try to explain to me how this wasn't a package deal. Like somehow this was different than Memphis hiring Keelan Lawson or John Calipari um, before Josh Pastner hiring Milt Wagner. Like it is what it is. It's fine. I just don't know what brings fans to 
what makes it so difficult for them to just sort of acknowledge it is what it is and move on? Why? Like, I don't understand. Like, this is the argument you want to get into because it's not an argument you can win. Like, no, everybody else sees it for what it is. Yeah, that's a little bizarre. I don't know. The other interesting thing is that Romar is Porter Jr.'s godfather. I want to know. I'm sure it happened when he was like. Here's the here's the crazy thing. I'm sure it happened. He, he became his godfather like four months ago. I hope. <laughs> I'm, I I'm so. kidding. I no, that, that's that's like that's not turn, true. Turn fourteen or whatever. It would be amazing if that was the case. But they have known each other since the mid '80s. Yes. So there is like the, the relationship is based in some sort of like you know genuine uh, connection there. So it is different from. You know, some things that that have happened in other instances where assistants have been brought on and and passed and all that stuff. So I agree, but it still is what it is. It it very much is what it is, and I mean Washington is gonna. I did not think Romar would make it through this past season. I'll be honest, but he did, and now he will have Markel Fultz on the roster next season, who was a prospect a lot of people think can go top five in a very very strong 2017 draft. Right, and then I'll have Porter after that. So if nothing, I mean, barring the most cataclysmic of, of seasons next year, Romar has a job for at least two more years and probably will extend that beyond that to the point where Washington should make the tournament both years, at least one, okay? And with that, he'll wind up being one of the longest tenured coaches at all Power 5 schools by the time we get this because I think he'll now, uh, I think he'll, he's an alum of the school, I think he'll make it to at least 2020, um, he'll have gone two decades there. So this this has really been a huge coup for him personally. Um, we'll see what happens with the program overall. They're going to be interesting at, at the very least. And, you know, it's not – Washington's had, a, you know, a few pros, you know, come out of the system under Romar. We know that, Brandon Roy being the best of them. But it's not often that you see uh, a school like Washington land these lottery talents so frequently. And so um, – their lack of success has been more surprising than anything given all of that. And now it should change because Porter should be the best of them all. But, uh, but we'll see. It's a, he's created an interesting dilemma for the school because he hasn't been to the NCAA tournament since 2011, I think. Yeah. So, something so it, like that. it's yeah. been a long time. So he's missed 2012, 13, 14, 15 and yeah. 16. When you miss, when you are at a Power Five school that's not Northwestern, and you miss the NCAA tournament five straight years, like you, you don't usually survive that. Um, it, I mean, it's very, like I, go do the go do the research on it. You Power Five coach misses NCAA tournament five straight years. How many of them survive it? I, I it's not it's not a good number. It doesn't happen often. It, it does because we were talking about this I think last year, and it, it's it happens, but it's not common. It's, it's, six is like the Drop dead, no shot. Occasionally, you'll have a coach that'll last five. We'll get there sixth year. Might hang on for a little bit longer. But I mean, Washington. I don't think they'll miss the tournament next year. But we could seriously have what I would have to think in the modern era, and I would qualify that basically since 1990. Okay, since the paradigm of coaching uh, major college athletics has changed, I don't think we have had one coach not at Northwestern. Um, go more than six straight years 
not making a tournament and hold on to his job. It would happen at Washington because I just don't. They would they would literally well, that, have to, that's, like six games for him to be fired. Well, that's just, that's the dilemma, right? Okay, so like let's say they do miss the NCAA tournament and they it's six straight years. Again, it is almost uh, unheard of to at a Power Five school, particularly a Power Five school that like. Um, fancies itself as a quality basketball program, which Washington has historic, you know, they, there's some history there. Like, they've been good. They've been relevant at times. Um, you know, to, to go six straight years missing the NCAA tournament and get, a, and get another year is almost unheard of. And yet, um, you don't fire a coach if he's got Michael Porter Jr. coming in. Like, it's almost a, a career, it's almost like a contract extension. Like, you, you hire Michael Porter Sr. to get Michael Porter Jr., and, and, and by extension, give yourself what amounts to a contract extension because almost whatever happens this season, uh, I, I can't see Washington firing Lorenzo Romar when he's got Michael Porter Jr. getting ready to enroll. Can you? I'm telling you, it would just have to be brutally bad. I just don't see how it's going to happen. So, so it's a smart uh, investment. Like, it is. It's smart from a basketball perspective. It's smart from a money perspective. And, again, I, I got no issue. I've never had an issue with this. I was on a radio uh, station in Seattle uh, several weeks ago, and they asked me, because apparently this was a debate, you know, in that market. Like, is this okay? Is this really what we want to be as a basketball program? And I was like, listen, if, if you know, if Michael Porter Sr. wanted a job um, and you didn't hire him, somebody else could hire him. Like, if he made it known he wanted a job. I know that that never came – I talked to some other staffs that were recruiting, and they told me it never came up in conversations. Like, when, when Michael Sr. took the job at Washington, it wasn't something that he had talked about with, say, Virginia or Indiana. So, like, he didn't – he hadn't made it known, I want a job and my son could be tied to it. But, like, if he did make it known, like, if, if, if Washington didn't do it, somebody else was going to do it. So, like, why not? Again, it's a legal – I think anything that is technically legal is, is fine, particularly in a sport where a lot of people don't think folks are operating inside the rule book anyway um, to get players, high-level players. Anything within the rule book is fine by me. I'll never be the columnist that questions uh, that type of behavior. So if you've got to hire uh, Michael Porter Sr. to ensure you get Michael Porter Jr., I say do it. If you've got to hire Devin Downey Sr. to get Devin Downey Jr., I say do that. Shout out to Devin Downey. Yeah, that's right, baby. Absolutely. Um, real quick before we wrap it up, let's just quickly touch on something that my Twitter mentions have been flaming up on. So I killed Duke last week. Didn't really kill Kentucky, but I went after him a little bit as well this week. Listen, it's slow. It's July. We're in between recruiting trips, and they're releasing their non-conference schedules. Talked about this on the podcast with Sam before as well. Um, my stance on this will remain firm and unchanged until something changes, and I just don't expect it to change soon, but that doesn't mean I'm going to change my opinion on it. Um, the schedules overall, non-conference-wise, for both these schools, they're not terrible. They're not even bad. Kentucky has plenty of big-named uh, schools on the schedule. It will play home against Kansas. It will get uh, North Carolina on a neutral in the CBS Sports Classic. It gets Michigan. Uh, I'll be there for that game in New York for the Champions Classic, which happens, obviously, the first Tuesday of the season. Um, it'll play Arizona State actually in a one-off in the Bahamas, the same spot where the Battle for Atlantis happens. They're going to play Arizona State, but it's not going to be in the Battle for Atlantis. My point is, uh, college basketball, and you've harped on this as well, so we don't have to spend too much time on it, but it is timely. I figure we should hit on it real quick. Uh, the sport's not better served by having its top 10, top 15 programs simply refuse to play games on the road. Don't get me wrong. I understand why Mike Krzyzewski, John Calipari, and a lot of coaches refuse to do so. Kentucky's only road game is against Louisville last this year. Of course, last year they went on the road. They played Kansas in the Big 12 SEC Challenge, so they get the return of home. 
and they did play UCLA on the road last year as well. To me, when you're citing examples of major conference uh, top 15 teams going on the road to play twice in a non-conference situation, to me that's just not good enough. I understand it's the state of the game, but I think we should be pushing programs and coaches to simply do better and try harder. And in a perfect world for me, I'd have the NCAA mandate that every team in college basketball plays at least two true road games in order to qualify for the NCAA tournament. That won't happen, but the sport would certainly be better for it. There's one more thing I want to throw in here. There is a practical element to this in that a lot of these programs have to have a certain number of home games yep. in order to uh, to raise money. So I, I, that, I understand that's also a big part of it. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Texas and Michigan are have just agreed. Rothstein just tweeted as we were recording this podcast. They're going to do a home and home. There have been, I feel like there's been a little bit of a flurry of more of these coming. I've, I've written on a few of them this offseason. There simply should be as many of these as possible because college basketball at its best. Sure, you can say the NCAA tournament, but I'm telling you, uh, two top 20 teams playing in one of those teams' home gyms, uh, no matter what time of the year, I'm telling you that's the best of the sport. It's terrific. And it needs as much of that as possible. So we shouldn't necessarily let these huge programs skate on playing three or four other top 30 programs, but all of them being on neutral court environments. That's simply not good enough for me. I agree. Um, and yet, um, you know, as I wrote late last week, you know, whether you're talking about Duke's schedule or Kentucky's schedule or basically any, you know, uh, high major schedule, um, you know, they're all going to look similar in this way. Too many games that are completely uninteresting and, um, and, and are, are basically mismatches. And, but the reason that's the case is it's a college basketball problem. It's not a Duke problem. It's not a Coach K problem. It's not a Kentucky problem. It's not a John Calipari problem. It's a college basketball problem. There's no incentive, uh, no real incentive, for those types of schools to challenge themselves consistently in the non-league and or go on the road. Um, I would love uh, the suggestion you made to actually be real, that the NCAA said, hey, in your non-league, you've got to play two true road games to qualify for the NCAA tournament. We don't care where, but you've got to go play them. That'd be terrific. And I don't even care if somebody would try to uh, manipulate that system and in, in, in saying, okay, well, we'll just play two road games at, you know, hey, we're Duke, we'll go play at North Carolina Central. Fine. Go play at North Carolina Central. Wouldn't that be – but it'd still be awesome to have Duke and North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, go play at North Carolina Central. That would be awesome for North Carolina Central. So I'm fine with it. I, I'd prefer Duke to go play at Indiana or Duke to go play at Kansas. But if somebody tried to say, okay, you can make us go on the road, but you can't make us go challenge ourselves on a road, we'll go play um, – uh, a low major on the road. Awesome. Go play a low major on the road. It'll make for a great scene. It'll make for memories for those people on that campus forever. I'm fine with that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just you're also right. That's not going to happen. And the, among the reasons it won't happen is because there is a financial aspect to this. I don't mean to bring up Memphis again, but I just I'm very familiar with that program because I covered it. And even if Josh Pastner or John Calipari or now Tubby Smith wanted to go really challenge themselves in the non-league and go on the road and play Wichita and go on the road and play Gonzaga and go on the road and play Indiana. Um, they could only do so many, so many of those games because they have to have a certain number of, of home games. And here's why they play in an 18,000 seat arena. They, they sell not anymore, but at one point they were selling about 16, 17,000 season tickets Every one of those uh, games, that's why they played so many buy games. They pay somebody $65,000 to come in, but 
but they'd make so much more than that. And and at a school like Memphis, that's non-power five, that had to the, where basketball had to support the football program, like the basketball revenue helped help pay for for football. Um, it was just like your hands are tied. You have you have to have so many home games against bad opposition because that's how you create the season ticket package that's going to produce the the um, largest amount of revenue you could possibly produce. So I don't. I'm not always critical of coaches um, in these situations because I understand that um, a lot of times it ain't up to them. You know, they they their athletic directors or or presidents or chancellors are saying um, we don't care what you do with these three games, but these these nine have to be at home and they can't be home and homes uh, because we you, we can't afford for you to go on the road next year we need that home game again ne- you know uh, uh next season so you gotta play these low majors and and, and buy games even if you're going to be favored by 20 every single time because we need it we need a certain amount of games in this building to help fund our athletic department um so it's a flaw within the system and while i do think it it's it's um improvable I don't know that it's completely fixable, but it is undeniably one of the issues with college basketball because, and I've thought this for a while, like if you're a North Carolina fan or you're a Kentucky fan or you're a uh, Indiana fan, outside of just I love going to the games, why would you pay for season tickets? Like you're most you you like a good portion of your of a great college basketball team's games are going to be total mismatches, and it's something frankly you just don't get in the NBA. Like, like, you know, in the NBA, like half your games by definition are against playoff teams. Now, now that doesn't mean like they're all great playoff teams, but like you get you consistently if you're an NBA season ticket holder, you consistently get competitive games in in unless you're a Lakers fan lately uh, and a Sixers fan, obviously. But like for the most part, you know, like if you're I'll just stay in Memphis, if you're a Grizzlies fan, you buy season tickets, you know, a a good portion of the games are going to be competitive basketball games. Um, in college basketball, if you're a fan of a really good team, a good percentage of the games are not going to be competitive. A good percentage of the games are not going to be interesting, and yet you're still paying same price for that. It's always like I'm glad people do it, but I don't know why they do. Yeah, I know. I still think this can be fixed. I think if if there are more, not totally fixed, but I, I still feel like if more top 30 program level programs in college basketball agreed to home and homes, you – I'm not saying a major. I'm not saying that Kentucky and Texas and Duke and Kansas and all these programs have to absolutely load up with insane schedules. I'm saying if you swap out even two games that are kind of just meh throwaways, whatever, and you replace them with home and homes against like programs, even two, even just two, it would significantly uh, upgrade the appeal of your schedule and upgrade the appeal of college basketball at a time when it's never going to beat football pro in college in November, but even, you know, into late November, into December, when their college football slows, I still think that there's a lot of room for improvement there. I think we'll eventually get there to a certain extent, just because I don't, I can't see college basketball overall settling for this over a long period because it would damage the sport too much. I, that's my personal opinion. I could be wrong, but um, it's not totally fixable, but it's, it's definitely something that's improvable and, that's why we, you know, it's just it's worth making some noise about it now because then when we get to November and we see the schedules and people are just like, oh, what's going on here? Well, you know, th- that's why you need to kind of remind, keep, kind of keep these schools on the hook for this kind of stuff, so that it's at least a part of uh, a part of the conversation going forward. Even though there are obviously mm-hmm. financial um, hurdles that mm-hmm. must be cleared, and, and it's it's something that can't be totally eliminated no. unless you went down to like 120 teams in D1, which 
would probably benefit college hoops, but that's also never, never going to happen. No, so. you, you'll have I, – I would love that too, a, like uh, a downsized Division One because uh, there's too many teams in Division One. But um, to your point, you'll have weekends. We'll have weekends in November, December where there's like one game between top 25 teams. Sometimes I believe zero games between top 25 games, and that's that's just not fun. Uh, for anybody so I'm not sure that um, it's going to get fixed but uh, I hope you're right I hope it I know it is improvable and I'd like to see it uh, improve remember you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast on iTunes that's the uh, best way to get the the latest episodes as quickly as possible so please do that thank you all so much for listening we're going to talk to you again uh, later on this week I think uh, from Las Vegas so uh, make sure to check that out until then no promises though let's just see how it goes We'll see how it goes. I bet we could fit in 30 minutes in Las Vegas, I, right, Norlanda? I think so, but you just never know. That's you, all. In fairness, you never know. Perhaps we'll talk to you from Las Vegas. If not, I promise we'll talk to you next week. Either way, till then, take care.